Hi, this is Bob Heiler of the Bankruptcy Law Success Podcast, where we introduce you to successful bankruptcy lawyers, as well as powerful ideas that can transform your bankruptcy practice. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Jafar, an attorney in Detroit who co-founded Jafar and Mahdi Law Group in 2008, and then Fairmax Law in November 2015. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, yeah, we were actually introduced by uh, Dave Danielson over at Sin Group. Um, I, I met Dave through the podcast. Uh, he's a fan. So, Michael, how do you know, uh, how do you know Dave? Uh, Dave is the owner of, well, the CEO of Best Case Bankruptcy, and that's the software we use to process our bankruptcy filings. Uh-huh. But not everyone knows the CEO of their, of their bankruptcy <laughs> software company. So how did that happen? You know, we, were a, we are a heavy volume filer, but also we, uh, we came to his attention because of our unique work in discharging student loans in bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So he reached out to us. Awesome. I definitely wanted to get into the student loan side of things, but I thought it's just we'd just start by getting to know you a little bit. Um, I saw on your website that you graduated from Wayne State Law School in 2006, and you started as a, did you start as a trial lawyer? Is that how it happened? Yeah, I uh, started off as an indigent defense attorney, you know, defending people who couldn't afford attorneys. I was uh, court appointed by some cities, and so as you can understand, I did a lot of trials. Mm-hmm. Pretty much I would do five or three trials a day, you know, with an hour preparation. That's the nature of that, uh, that's, the, that's the nature of that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't unique in that in that sense. I was just any other, uh, you know, uh, public defender. You know, doing a lot of trials, a lot of motions, pretty much more trials than motions, more trials even than, than even uh, anything. Just pretty much two to three trials a day, uh, helping people, defending people, and I did that for for the first couple of years of my practice of my of my career. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy that work, or how did how did that go? Yeah, I did not like it. Some people will give you the politically correct answer and say I like helping people. And while I love helping people, I didn't like I didn't like seeing people be corralled through the system like me. A lot of people defended, you know, deserved a great defense, but it, which was impossible when a you know a judge would tell you, young guy, come here, we have a trial starting in. Well, the trial started 10 minutes ago, and there's no attorney to represent this person. Uh, I need you to jump in, and I need you to defend this person. Uh, there's three witnesses against them, and uh, there's your client. We forget their name. Go ahead and get started with the trial. So I didn't like that aspect of it. it was a, it's a broken system. Everybody agrees it's a broken system. I did my best. I actually had a winning record at trial. But despite that, it just it just didn't. It's a broken system, and everybody, every participant in the system is frustrated except for the prosecutors they have a big heads up you know they have a big leg up on the competition on the other side obviously they prepare for these trials they have everything in their in their favor so but everybody else is frustrated with the system that's why there's a high turnover in that market and the in addition to all that the attorneys aren't even paid that well i mean you're you're there's a reason why only young inexperienced attorneys go there because that's you know, that's the last resort they that's the last thing they resort to when they want to get their career started and they don't have any other opportunities mm-hmm. so I did, I did i did not enjoy that no but it must have been sweet when you did win and and you beat those prosecutors despite their resources yeah yeah i actually won my first trial ever and i and that was a trial where i where I was retained 10 minutes after the trial began uh, because the defense attorney who's actually now a judge found out he had a conflict interest after the trial began <laughs> and so they called me i was i was on the treadmill in my shorts and they said there's a trial going and we can't find anybody to do it we'll wait for you but uh, we need you to show up uh-huh. i you know put on my suit showed up didn't know my client's name no witnesses in her favor three witnesses against her domestic violence case and i actually won that 
yeah, it was nice. It was nice. So I can see why you kind of burned out of doing that. Um, you started the Jafar and Mahdi Law Group in 2008. So what was the uh, focus of of that law group? Are you still involved in that practice? Or? No, I, uh, I, uh, I sold the firm to my partner mm-hmm. two years ago. And it was a great separation. We're still in the same office, but the, uh, that firm now rents space from me. And I founded my own outfit called Fairmax Law. Mm-hmm. So J- Jafar and Mahdi, what was the focus of, of... Bankruptcy. It was just bankruptcy? Yeah, bankruptcy. Now, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an accountant as well. So I do a lot of business transactions, but I don't advertise for them. I do them for select clientele because mm-hmm. I have a lot of experience with that prior to becoming an attorney. Uh, but I don't advertise for that. You can't advertise for business transactions. You just have to develop a, a following. Mm-hmm. And we also do a lot of traffic matters, a lot of traffic defense, mm-hmm. traffic tickets, reckless driving, DUIs, stuff like that. Because obviously I have that experience from when I was a public defender. Okay. Yeah. But the main, main, main thrust of my entire career and the way I feed my family, pretty much 90% of my work is bankruptcy. And, and, and debt, debt defense, credit repair, filing FCRA complaints, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. How did you get your How did you get your start in bankruptcy then? When I was in law school, the longest standing Chapter Thirteen trustee in the country ended up being one of my professors, mm-hmm. and I developed an interest in bankruptcy from his class. And you know, bankruptcy directly relates to my my true passion, which is accounting. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty much, it's, it's it's you need to be an accountant to really really do a bankruptcy well. Okay. That's why some trustees aren't even attorneys. Some bankruptcy trustees are not even lawyers. They're just they're CPAs mm-hmm. like me. So I uh, so I had an affinity to it from for all those reasons. So I said, let me let me take a shot. And in 2008, I don't know if you remember, but then the whole economy, world economy melted, and there was a gigantic influx of bankruptcy filings. Yes. And so it was just the right timing. Bankruptcy was the issue of the time. Mm-hmm. It was on the nightly news. It was everywhere. It was all around you. Bankruptcy was everywhere, and so I figured, let me throw my head and let me throw my head in the race and see what I can do. And at that point, you you could find bankruptcies in an elevator. I mean, you could find them everywhere. You mm-hmm. could just accidentally you could accidentally file five or six bankruptcies even if you weren't even a bankruptcy attorney. So it was easy. It was the easiest time to start a bankruptcy practice was at uh, at that time, two thousand and actually two thousand and seven. Right, was mm-hmm. when when we started when we we started getting ready to open our practice. Okay. So that was absolutely the right time, and the re- the rest was history for me. So one of the things that I, I find kind of interesting checking out your your website is that you not only do bankruptcies but you do FCRA violations, uh, FDCPA violations. Yes, you even do kind of credit repair and help people avoid bankruptcy. It seems like you're taking a and I think you've, you you have language to this extent somewhere on your site, but you, you you take a holistic approach and you kind of use the whole animal rather than just kind of taking out the bankruptcy part. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So how did you evolve towards that strategy? Because most people, when they went through the mortgage meltdown, the Great Recession, whatever you call it, most people were so kind of busy cranking out bankruptcies that they weren't, they, you know, you don't need to use the whole animal. So how did you evolve that approach? That's a great, I'm so glad you asked that. And, and here's exactly how. I knew at that time that bankruptcy would eventually fade away, you know, not go away entirely, but I knew that it would, that we were in just a, uh, a temporary uh, upswing in terms of filing. And I enjoyed helping people who were in debt 
so much that I said, how can I do this for the rest of my life? How can I do this professionally forever? Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to just doing it now and going back to the disgusting legal work, disgusting legal work such as divorces and criminal defense and public defense. How can I avoid ever having to go back there? <laughs> I said, well, there, there will always be people overextending themselves with, with debt. So why why not start helping people avoid bankruptcy when they want to avoid bankruptcy? Uh, because one of my paralegals one time told me that she, uh, it's a story that I will never, ever forget. She worked at a collection firm and she told me, uh, I asked her a question that said, how many people would you guys successfully be able to garnish? She's like, well, we were able to successfully garnish pretty much 80% of the people that we had judgments against, you know, wage garnishment. And the rest of them, we were able to garnish at least with a bank account or a vehicle or a property seizure or a bank account seizure. So I said, okay, and of the people that were getting wage garnishments, how many of them would file bankruptcy? I thought she was going to tell me 100%. Mm -hmm. She told me 5% of people that had a wage garnishment would ever file bankruptcy. 95% would just allow the wage garnishment to go until we got all of the money. Wow. And that kind of stunned me. So when I realized, when she told me that from that day on, she changed my life. I, I was never the same. When she told me that, I said, the fact that 95% of people are willing to, to are willing to be garnished and not file bankruptcy. That means that people will never, they just will not file bankruptcy, period. People will just do everything they can to avoid bankruptcy. You know, we, it's, we're, it's indoctrinated within us from childbirth that the word bankruptcy is bad. The mm -hmm. word bankrupt is an epithet. It's an absolute epithet. It's used, they can tell you, you know, they say things like, well, you're, you're more, this person's morally bankrupt. I mean, what are you what what are you gonna think as you grow up if you hear phrases like morally bankrupt? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, somebody's devoid of you know, somebody is a deadbeat, which are all bad words and they're inapplicable. Mm -hmm. You're not a deadbeat. You're not a deadbeat if you had a heart attack and uh, your insurance denied you coverage and you have a fifty thousand dollar medical bill mm -hmm. and you have two kids and you're not you're not a deadbeat. You're absolutely not. You're not even any. You're not even a bad. You're nothing. You're you're a normal person who had bad instincts. But you now, it's, it's compounded, your, your pain and suffering is compounded by the fact that society now has labeled you as a deadbeat because you have to go to a bankruptcy hearing to avoid a garnishment, which will prevent you from feeding your, feeding your kids, mm -hmm. you know? So I, so, so, so I told myself, I'm going to do everything I can to make a living helping people avoid collection, right? Mm -hmm. So I came up with the way of settling debt, of, of helping people avoid bankruptcy by settling debts. Now... I rarely allow people to hire me for that because most people are better served in the bankruptcy context, you know, but I have a, a, a steady, steady stream of clients that I do debt settlement for, which is let's avoid the bankruptcy and let's settle your debts. And that is for people who absolutely just refuse to file bankruptcy mm -hmm. or people who should not file bankruptcy for other reasons. They may, maybe have some fraud, maybe they have some transfers, maybe they have too much assets. So there's some people that shouldn't file bankruptcy. But the main, 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 main thing that I think will, when I, one day when I die, will be a part of my legacy by my colleagues is the student loan stuff and the FCRA stuff. And even the FCRA stuff, the student credit bureaus, mm -hmm. that's, that's not even that unique. There are a lot of attorneys that do it. Mm -hmm. And I love doing it. I actually wrote, wrote, wrote a continuing education book on it, mm -hmm. right? So I love doing it. But that's not something that's unique to me. That's something that I learned from other attorneys and that a lot of attorneys do. Thing that I will, I'll probably, I'll never develop something as unique or clever 
or dynamic mm-hmm. as the work we're doing right now, discharging student loans. That will be my absolute legacy. I will never do anything as unique as that. And I can confidently say me and my guys at my office are the only attorneys in the country that are doing it. Mm-hmm. There isn't a single other attorney that is doing it or even knows about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's talk about that. How did you how did you come across this this little mini practice area? So Dave Danielson introduced me to a really really smart young lawyer named Austin Smith, and he connected us, and we created a synergy at my office, helping people with student loans. Austin had done a lot of research, and he had really you know pioneered and and, and, and done some research, and, and 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 he and I had a lot of lot of conversations, a lot of meetings. Uh, and I credit him for tuning me into it. Mm-hmm. And we had many, 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 many long, several-hour sessions of discussing how to build a practice, how to how to monetize it, how to go after the cases. Austin and I, uh, and Dave, just after many, many, many hours of conversations, we decided to uh, have a little quick conference together, face to face, where we drove to Chicago and then he flew into Chicago. And we spent an entire day at a Starbucks in downtown Chicago, huddled around a small table. Mm-hmm. Nobody left that table. We never, you know, maybe one or two bathroom breaks. Nobody ate, ate a single bite of food. We had initially said, we'll go out, we'll go out to dinner. Mm-hmm. We never we forgot about dinner plans. We just sat down and we didn't eat. We just sat there all day, huddled around a small table at a Starbucks. And we basically carved up a system to go after these cases. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the rest was history. We've been going after these cases. We've been going after attorneys. We've been going after anybody who could listen. And we've been filing cases, and we have yet to lose a single one. Okay, so let's, let's, let's take a moment here to explain to the audience what your cases are. What's the specific kinds of uh, student loans that um, you found to be dischargeable? So, okay, this only applies to private student loans, mm-hmm. which is billions of dollars of Private student loans are out there in the United States, so mm-hmm. this is definitely a gigantic, gigantic subset of student loans. Mm-hmm. This does not apply to federal student loans. It only applies to private student loans. Mm-hmm. And the fact pattern is a little bit complex. Not complex for us, but it's a little bit complex probably for the podcast. It gets into a lot of technicalities, but the short, short of it is if anybody who has a private student loan they most likely received that private student loan after 2003 mm-hmm. when the bankruptcy code was amended to make them non-dischargeable. However, the way the bankruptcy law was structured to make them non-dischargeable, it actually did not make make them non-dischargeable. It only made a small subset of private student loans non-dischargeable, but creditors made mistakes in their underwriting and they went too far, as they usually do, and they were basically handing out student loans, but it, under they're handing out a lot of loans under the guise of a student loan, but they didn't follow the underwriting criteria set by the statute mm-hmm. to make sure that they were a non-dischargeable student loan. So they were giving people money that they should not have given them. And because of that, it, it, it was not, it's not considered non-dischargeable because of that, mm-hmm. even though it's scheduled as a student loan, and even though the statements say student loan, mm-hmm. they're actually a regular loan, okay? But the curious thing is creditors, the creditors that gave them, look at them as a student loan and they treat them like student loans, meaning I don't care if you filed bankruptcy, I need my money. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to give me my money, I'm going to sue you, I'm going to get a judgment, and I'm going to garnish you, mm-hmm. right? So 
if you're a bankruptcy attorney, the way you have to look at it is, what would you do and how much value can, can you provide for your clients and for your practice if I told you billions of dollars of regular credit card debt out there by Citibank and Chase and Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. and they are going after your clients, even though your client got a bankruptcy discharge and notified them, and collecting on them and garnishing them, you would... It would basically be in heaven at that point. You know, you would have a lot of extra work to do and a lot of value you can provide for your clients. Because that's basically what it is. That's basically what's happening. Mm-hmm. And these creditors are going after these quote unquote student loans as though they are student loans, as though they were not discharged, when in fact they were discharged. So mm-hmm. what we do is we 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 file a motion to reopen the bankruptcies in some districts. Some other districts don't require that. Mm-hmm. And then we file contempt for, cont- motions for contempt. We ask for the remainder of the debt to be completely wiped out. And all the money that has been collected post-filing to be returned, plus attorney fees. Wow. And what about what about some of these other things like, does this violate FDCPA or anything? Any of the other kind of s- statutes out there? Everything. Yeah, everything is a possibility. Everything. FCRA. Uh, FCRA. I mean, they they report they report delinquencies to the credit bureau. So that's the first uh, that's the first thing. You know, they also send collection letters for discharge debts, which is also uh, illegal. They call you, which is a, it's a violation of the TCPA, Telephone Consumer Protection Act. They harass you. They sue you. They also violate your bankruptcy discharge. They do they do a lot of obviously. I mean, they're collecting. They're they're collecting on you on a debt that was discharged. I mean, the amount of things that we are able to allege against them is seemingly limitless. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if there's someone has like, I don't know, let's say $20,000 in a private student loan that should have been discharged in a bankruptcy, if, if that case did not settle, like what's, what are, what's the kind of max alternative to settlement that you could get through a court process? I mean, I mean, the max obviously that you can get on, on, uh, on, pretty much on a case like this i mean it's just the to, to get to get back the money that was that was uh, illegally uh, uh, compelled to be paid mm-hmm. uh, plus attorney fees plus uh you know uh statutory damages i mean there's statutory damages under the fdcpa and then under the fcra i mean it's just attorney fees mm-hmm. attorney fees and statutory damages so we're not talking about you know a million dollars per case we're we're, we're talking you know we're, i mean uh, you know, so we're we're bound very tightly by these uh, confidential confidential settle agreements, settlement agreements. But what I can tell you is, if 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 you look at a typical case going forward in the future, I mean, it would basically be you know pretty much what I just laid out, which is uh, recoupment of the money that was paid, mm-hmm. plus attorney fees, plus some statutory damages. If you're not talking millions of dollars, but you're talking about enough money to make the difference in somebody's life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your client, you know, so if you have a client who gets a phone call from you uh, and you say, hey, you know, I did your bankruptcy a couple of years ago. I just met these attorneys out of Detroit that might be able to help you get rid of all these student loans. Mm-hmm. And hey, you, I know you, uh, you've been paying on them, but you owe about 80. Why don't you give them a call? And let's just say that person calls us. Because I got I got to talk about this as 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 though it's a case going forward. I can't talk about cases that we have or that we settled. No, no, I understand. I understand. So imagine, so imagine six months later, mm-hmm. after we do what we have to do, and we have not charged this client a penny. We call the client and tell them 
we're going to get back the money you paid, plus we're going to get attorney fees, plus all the $80,000 that you still owe is completely wiped out. Yeah. You know, I mean, what's that going to do for you? It's going to do a lot. It's going to do a lot. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, uh, the type of thing that would change somebody's the trajectory of their life forever. That's a whole entire retirement account. That's a whole entire retirement account for a person. I mean, Mm -hmm. you instantly basically gave them a forgiveness of $85,000 of debt with interest, which would have taken them 30 years to pay. And they wouldn't have paid 85. They would have paid probably 170 over 30 years. You know, so, so you're, you're, you're helping people out a lot. So Michael, help me size this. I mean, like what percentage of of private student loan debt issued after say 2003 is subject to uh, being discharged in a bankruptcy? That's a tough statistic. First of all, that's pretty much the only time that student loans were private student loans were issued was after 2003. So pretty much all private student loans were issued around after that, but in terms of the amount that would be discharged, it's a tough statistic. I don't know. So what I tell people is a lot. I, I, li- I like to think of it as more more than 50%, but I, I don't, I really, I, I, I can't give you like an actual statistic because it's, it's case by case, but it, it might be as high as 80%. Wow. You know, it might be as high as 80%. It's, uh, let's just put it like this. It's a lot. It's not 5%. It's not something small. It's not like it's not like we have to fish for these cases in the Bering Sea. <laughs> We're fishing for these cases out of a barrel. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, these are like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, it's 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 really easy to find these cases. We just have to have somebody pick up the phone and call us. Mm-hmm. You know, so if we talk to 10 people, uh, we usually like eight of the cases. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, you know, you, you, you and Austin and um, the third attorney – um, David, David, like how did, okay. So like, I understand that the, these cases exist because there's, they're not meeting the statutory requirements as defined by the 2003 law to qualify as student loans. Like now that you found the needle in the haystack, you can kind of do it many times, but how did you find that first needle? I mean, how did you figure out that most bankruptcy lawyers will will never even look at the terms of a, of a of a student loan. Lots of research, lots of research, just lots of research. Like, how did you even think to do that? Was that was it was a lot of research. I give the credit to Austin. He 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 was the progenitor mm-hmm. of this research, and 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 it was burning the midnight oil for about three years straight as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And then it's like one of those things when 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 the truth begins to unfold, you keep peeling layers you keep peeling back layers until you finally get to the core mm-hmm. and once you get to the core i mean if you start peeling layers and every time you peel back a layer you know you see another layer and you know how to peel that layer back you just keep peeling and peeling mm-hmm. so it's kind of one of those things like a snowball effect it's just it's a it's a self-motivating type of thing mm-hmm. so two things occur to me first this technique uh, and do you have a name for this technique we never gave it a name. I think we say we, b- between us, uh, uh, between in our team, we call it a cost of attendance case. We just gave up. We just gave it that name because one of the major requirements is the loan was in, was given in, in excess of the cost of attendance. That's like the first test. Mm. And that's why I say pretty much almost every student loan case was, loan was given to you more than what the cost of attendance was at that school. So we just call them cost of attendance cases. Yeah. That's just how we call them internally. Mm-hmm. 
it'd be great to give that a sexy name. Yeah. Because uh, it really does seem like, uh, I mean, there's a real Aaron Brockovich moment here, as you tell me, <laughs> as you just as you describe this to me. Yeah. It really is. It really is. No, it really is. So the first thing is that if somebody's a bankruptcy lawyer and they're filing on behalf of a client, like they really need to be dismissing this private student loan debt, this, these cost of attendance student uh, private student loan debts. You see, this is this this is the frustrating part. Mm-hmm. This is why it's so frustrating that that we've had that that we haven't been able to convince attorneys to to pick up our calls. Mm-hmm. Some some have, on mm-hmm. mass, they're not doing it. Here's the frustrating thing: they don't have to do anything when they schedule it normally just put it on schedule f mm-hmm. it's automatically discharged without them having to do anything it's just discharged i mean they literally they just have to keep doing what they're doing they just have to you know they're just they're just telling their client well just so you know even though we're scheduling this we're only doing it because we're required to schedule it it's still not discharged you still have to you still have to pay this back that's a frustrating thing mm-hmm. and kind of just a lot of like what i call mental laziness there's a lot of people in this world that are just mentally lazy mm-hmm. once they get into a routine they just they don't want to break it so mm-hmm. if you're a bankruptcy lawyer and you're mentally lazy and your colleagues and peers and even judges told you well it's a student loan so obviously it's non-dischargeable that's it so if another attorney from another state tells you hey i'm discharging them let me call me so i can work with you on your cases and to split the fees mm-hmm. you're like yeah i'll get with i got a scheduling conference to attend i'll, I'll call you later mm-hmm. and then you just goes away it doesn't it, a lot of people just doesn't dawn on them hey let me take this seriously this is actually a big deal let me call this person now or let me make sure i call them on my way home to make sure that it's not a scam yeah. make sure it's it's real they just don't they just don't do it they just let it go okay uh, without getting too much in the details, though, what are, what are the steps that a bankruptcy attorney, let's call it a naive bankruptcy attorney who wants to become non-naive about this cost of attendance, um, private student loan issue, what do they need to do in order to discharge these these private student loans at the time of a bankruptcy? Nothing. They need to do everything the way they're doing now. Just don't tell their client this is discharged. Now, it's gonna, to, to, to know for a fact that that's going to be discharged. Yeah, they need to analyze the paperwork on the student loan. They need, yeah, they need to analyze, which they're that I can guarantee you they're not going to do, and that I don't blame them because yeah. they're not going to spend three years of research to understand, to learn it. They're not going to do that. Yeah. Okay, they're not going to do that, right? So what we're trying to tell people is, hey, listen, we'll just call us. I mean, it's not going to cost you a penny. It's not going to cost your client a penny. Mm-hmm. It's not going to cost anybody a dollar. Just call us. Let us work with you on it. And actually, best case, just put something called the student loan analyzer tool in best case software, mm-hmm. and they can actually use that. And what we've been telling attorneys, attorneys is we'll show you how to use it for free. We don't need you to pay us any money. We will show you how to use it free of charge. And in return, we don't want anything in return, but in return, we know you're going to remember that we are the authority on it. Mm-hmm. And so when you have cases, clients calling you, telling you, now they're coming after me, well, we will take on the case. Mm-hmm. And we, we we stand we stand to gain. So let's let's uh, let's pay Dave Danielson back a little bit for introducing us and talk about what the student loan analyzer does. Does it actually analyze a private student loan and tell you whether or not it violates this cost of attendance rule that you've come up with? Yes, I mean uh, he'll tell you yes, and then I and I can tell you the answer as well. The answer is yes. It will tell you whether or not that loan is dischargeable. Wow. I mean, I would I would argue. 
based off of what you told me, and obviously I'm not a, a subject matter expert here, but based on what you told me, it's legal malpractice not to do this check if you're going to file someone's bankruptcy and, and they have student loans. Well, it is. Yeah, absolutely. It is legal malpractice. Yep. Especially now since it's, you know, there's more and more and more instances of somebody else telling you, hey, these loans probably are discharged. Call us so we can explain why. If you just say, I don't, I don't want to call you, I don't, I, I don't have time, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go about my business like usual, then that's, I think it is malpractice. At a minimum, at best, it's legal mal- it's malfeasance. So. Mm-hmm. so it sounds like you've been contacting lawyers. Ironically, the longer the, the student loan borrower has been suffering since the discharge, the more damages there are and the deeper the pockets are from the student loan company in terms of paying it back. Absolutely. It's just weird the, how the way, the way the world works sometimes. Like The longer they've been suffering, the bigger the pot of gold. But that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sad, sad that it's that way. But okay, so you, you, you call up a bankruptcy attorney and you say, hey, work with me on these old cases and I'll, I'll split the, the fees with you or a referral fee or however it works. So you've been doing that. I understand that you're frustrated that not every lawyer in the world has gone back to you, but it sounds like it's going pretty well and that these cases are pretty easy to win. So, so tell me how that's going. Uh, yeah, I mean, the cases the cases are going great. We, Like I said, we have not yet we have not yet lost a case and we're very happy about that. Mm-hmm. The cases that we have not yet settled... We, we don't see any way of losing it, losing them, and we've got the upper hand on all of them. Mm-hmm. And they always inevitably talk, uh, get to talking about settlement. Mm-hmm. There's one case that we just won a decision on, and they, rather than talking settlement, they filed a notice to appeal the judge's decision. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we're confident in that case as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're going to continue chugging along, and we're never going to give up. We just want to keep getting more and more of these cases. And right now we're pretty much getting maybe one case every month. But we want to try to take it up to maybe getting 20 to 30 cases a month so we can focus solely on that. Mm-hmm. And why not? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So so you're reaching out to these other bankruptcy attorneys. I, you know, Tell me if, uh, if I'm asking too pointed a question, but have you thought about just reaching out to the to the people who have filed bankruptcy? I mean, can you look back in the court record and find that Bob Heiler filed for bankruptcy on X date and then contact Bob Heiler? We 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 tried, but it's too difficult and it's too expensive. Hmm. And people don't trust, right? So we tried, but here's the thing. I mean, you got to go one case at a time, not knowing whether or not that person even had a student loan to begin with, hmm. right? Because not everybody has student loans. So we're going one case at a time. And then even then, People's phone numbers are not listed there, so we can't call them. So we got to send them a letter, and we don't know if you know. We don't know if they. Um, we don't know if they have the same address, and even if they do, they don't know you, right? So it's very tedious. It's very difficult. It's not worth the time, mm. right? It's because with the statistics, the, the the way the statistics are, if you're going to get one out of a hundred people who even have a student loan, that's going to take you hours to get a hundred to, to look at a hundred people and you got to spend a lot of money because Pacer charges you to search. And then out of those one out of a hundred people, now you spend hours, you spend hours to get one person. So you're going to have to spend dozens of hours to get maybe 20 people. And out of those 20 people, what if, what if none of them ever respond to your letter? Mm-hmm. Cause they either don't know who you are or it sounds too good to be true or they changed their address. So it's not, it turned out to be not worth it. So what we came up with 
was what I thought was the best system, mm-hmm. which is called bankruptcy lawyers, because bankruptcy lawyers with one click of a button, we know, we know, they don't know how, but we know, we worked with Dave Danielson to, to have something in best case, and mm-hmm. obviously the credit goes to best case for this, uh, to, to, to do with one click of a button, you can search every single prior case that, that scheduled a private student loan. Mm-hmm. So, so, and then, and then at that point, it, it, that attorney has everybody's phone number. They have everybody's address and they have everybody's trust. So we can mail merge one letter. And so we were doing this, we're doing this with attorneys right now. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're actually doing it, right? But with one press of a button, we you know, we show them how to do a mail merge template to prepare a letter to every one of them on mass and just send it out saying, Hey, this is your bankruptcy attorney, you know, you know, whatever, Johnson and Murphy, uh, you know, we, when we filed your bankruptcy, we noticed that you scheduled a private student loan. Actually, that, that might have been discharged in the bankruptcy. Uh, call us so we can make sure that they're not still collecting on it, yada, yada, yada. This is not going to cost you a penny. By doing that, now the person can pick up the phone and call back and say, hey, I, I got your letter. Yeah, let's talk about this. And that was way more efficient. And that's actually free. Mm-hmm. That doesn't cost, that doesn't take hours. It takes 30 minutes to do 30 minutes total for your whole entire database. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't cost any, you know, well, you have to have postage, but obviously it kind of pays for itself. What we told attorneys is kind of pay for itself because you should be in touch with your prior clients. They might've forgotten who you are and they might've been referring their friends and family to another bankruptcy lawyer. This is a good way of touching base with them. But in addition to all that, you're going to make a lot of money and your clients are going to be happy mm-hmm. and you're going to have a loyal client for like the people that we have helped discharge their student loans, they will never, ever, ever have another attorney for the rest of their lives. And they will make sure their family members and their friends know about us mm-hmm. and about the attorneys that, they, that, that, that recommended them to us, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, we're their attorneys in other states. So it's not like, it's not like we're going to compete with them for business, obviously, because, we're you know, we don't do bankruptcies in Tennessee. We don't do bankruptcy. So it's, it's, it's a win-win-win. Mm-hmm. And how much can... It- I'm thinking of one uh, one of my clients. I think he's done six thousand. He's filed six thousand bankruptcies. He's been in business for a long time. How do the numbers work out in terms of like if if I told you that this guy existed, like what would you? How would you size that opportunity from a cost of attendance to private student loan point of view? That's a great question. Uh, just I want to make sure I understand your question. When you mean size an opportunity in terms of what, like how many cases he he might have. Yeah, how many cases might he have? So he's got six thousand. Let's call it five thousand to make the math a little easier. So you got five thousand cases. How many of those would be eligible? So the last attorney. So the last attorney that we scoured his database, mm-hmm. I think he had actually he had the same amount. He either had I forget if it was five thousand cases or it was somewhere around that, mm. and he had five hundred and thirty-eight possible possible cases so maybe 10 percent, and then of those and of those we're, we're still going through them we, we, we've, we've already found we've already found a few good cases going through the best case software hmm. and we are now just now reaching out to his clients mm-hmm. uh and we are just now having his assistant uh we did the mail merge template for him we are just now having his assistant prepare uh, to to print the the the, the letters uh, send them to the printer and then mail them out and we're coaching his staff on, Hey, uh, we know that this is not in your muscle memory, but a lot of people, when you send these out are going to call back and say, I got your letter. Mm-hmm. You cannot tell them. I don't know what you're talking about. The student <laughs> loans are non-chargeable. We've told you this before. Cause that, cause you know, 
says again, the muscle memory works against you. What about creating a special telephone number that people can call back that goes directly to your office? And then maybe even having that call recorded so that the the the, or the first attorney can listen to the recordings if they want, or, you know, so so they know you're not cheating them off of referral fees. That would be impossible anyway because of bankruptcy because they uh, they would get notice of the bankruptcy of this being filed because it would have to be filed in their bankruptcy. Oh, okay. And they would know about it. Oh, that's a good point. They'd get an email, so that would be. Yeah, so besides the fact that we have integrity, they don't know who we are, so we're strangers, so they don't have to assume we have integrity. Hmm. But beyond, even if we were completely uh, evil, uh, lying uh, human beings who, look at, who are intentionally looking to cheat them, even if we were those people, it's impossible to do so because they, they would get the first alert that we, our firm, filed an appearance in their bankruptcy. So they would get literally their computer would open up and say, you know, Fairmax Law filed an appearance on this client, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and they'd get notice of it for us. So it's impossible in terms of having a dedicated line. You know, we thought about it. We haven't done this with many attorneys. We're doing, we've done it with few. And what we found is they might not be happy that another firm wants somebody to call back a different number. Uh, we thought about it, but, you know, uh, some attorneys have a deep relationship with their with their clients, and uh, we just thought it would just be easier for the attorneys to have the client call them, and then we coach their staff. Mm-hmm. So, what's the next step from the client's perspective? They call back the office and they say, "Hey, I I think uh, you sent a letter about this issue. I'm calling back." And then, what does that person say? They say, "Excellent." They say, "All right, we're going to have uh, the attorney contact you." Uh, we're going to give them your number, you know, and the attorney's going to contact you, ask you some questions. You got to stand by your phone. You're going to get a call. If you, if you don't answer, they're going to leave your voice. And then we just call, 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 call. Mm-hmm. Once they pick up the phone, we have five or six questions we ask them just to see if the client actually does, you know, just superficially qualify for this. You know, some clients might say, I, you know, I, I, I actually solve federal loans. I, I don't know why I said it was. Sally Mayer or why I said it was Chase Bank. It was actually it's not. It's the federal it's the federal loan. I already I'm on a plan with the government. Yeah. So we asked them a question. Uh, at the end of that, when we find out that hey, this looks such a good case, then we ask them for several documents that are easy for them to get. Once we get those documents, we sit down, we review the case for an hour, and then we approve it. And that's all there is to it. Once we approve it, the rest is the rest is all on us. We prepare pleadings, we file them, we litigate, and then and then we try to resolve, get these to a, to a resolution within six months. Mm-hmm. So of those 538 cases, maybe you hear back, maybe you file, maybe it's another 10% where maybe you file 50 or so cases. Is that fair? Or? We, well, we've noticed we've filed eight we found 80% of the cases are actual cases of people who actually call us back. Mm-hmm. You know, people who call us back. I mean, I, I, I don't, I honestly can't remember the last client. I mean, maybe there was one or two in the past year that called us back and we didn't take them. And then even then it wasn't because they didn't have a case. It's because they actually had a great case, but they were already represented in a class action lawsuit, which is a whole nother story. But I don't, I don't remember a client calling us back, having private student loans and us telling them, no, it's not a good case. Now, 
there are some people who will call back and they have only $3,000 in private student loans. Hmm. Any attorney, you know, realize it's kind of like if you're a personal injury attorney and somebody comes into your office and say, I was in an accident. Uh, I wasn't injured. Nothing hurts, but my car was damaged and I, I need, I need to get my deductible back. And no lawyer is going to take that case on a contingency because, you know, you know I mean, it's 500 bucks. We just don't do it. So, so people who have a private student loan that's under five, thousand dollars we usually don't bother with it hmm. because they're usually not being harassed either because if they're being harassed then that's a big case even if it's just a five dollar debt mm-hmm. but i we've never noticed that creditors harass people who owe less than ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars if they did then we would take the case just on that on that front mm-hmm. i guess where i'm going with this is that you know my audience is bankruptcy lawyers so if someone has five thousand cases and kind of payday can they look to if they pick up the phone and give you a call in addition to helping their clients discharge all these private student loans how much money i can give you one example Hmm. without naming a name Mm -hmm. a person making fifty thousand dollars a year who owed one hundred and fifty thousand in total private student loans on to two different creditors so there was two different cases Mm -hmm. on one case we forced them to pay us fifteen thousand Okay, and wipe out the remaining balance. On another case, we could have went all the way and gotten them to pay us, but they made an offer she couldn't refuse, which is we'll just wipe out all of your debt mm-hmm. and we pay you nothing. And in return, you just you're responsible to pay your attorneys. And she she offered to take that route. So basically, she ended up paying between the money she paid us and the money that we received. She basically ended up paying us the total out of pocket for her. Because uh, she received money on the first case. She actually received a check, so she didn't pay us anything on the first case. Mm-hmm. And the other case, she received no money, but she had to pay us, but she wiped out all of her student loans on both cases. Mm-hmm. On hundred over $150,000 in student loans, it costed her a total of 5000 And when you balance both cases together, and she had all of her debts wiped out. Mm-hmm. right? And that's just because she opted to take a quick settlement. Mm-hmm. right? That's an example. That's an actual example. So that you know that's the way these cases go there's 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 another case where the client got all their uh, student loans wiped out and they didn't have to pay anything okay Uh, we got paid our attorney fees Mm -hmm. so it just and and now we're we're still in the early stages of this Mm -hmm. what we're noticing was when we went to mediation with one of the defendants the defendant pulled up eight cases and said hey why don't we just try to resolve all these cases on this docket that we have with you you know Mm -hmm. so we're going to start that effect coming down the pipeline now as we start to get more cases because in the beginning we had to basically convince these creditors hey we, we got you dead to rights mm-hmm. let's settle and they were like well good you know fat chance not only are we not going to settle we will see you in court and we will stand over your carcass as you write us a check <laughs> for this frivolous lawsuit you just filed mm-hmm. we had to deal with that up until recently now with some of these big, big, big defendants, they now know that these cases are not frivolous. And if anything, that these cases, we are going to win. Mm-hmm. We can start settling these cases sooner. If you talk to me in a year, it will be completely different. And in a year from now, we the settlements will get better. They'll become faster. They'll become more efficient. We will become more efficient. And, and hopefully, hopefully, we continue to get cases we see now an uptick in the number of cases we're getting. Awesome. You're describing a problem that affects 8 out of 10 
private student loans that you look at involves billions of dollars. I made a joke about Aaron Brockovich earlier, but I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but is there is there an opportunity for some kind of class action lawsuit? I don't want you to tip your hand if that's something you're working on, but... No, we. Uh, I don't. I don't mind tipping my hand. Uh, this is a, the, the the good thing about it is no, it's not good for a class action. I don't. I don't. Uh, we, we 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 thought about it. Hmm. It's not because the fact patterns are too varied from client to client. They're just way too varied, way too different. There's no. There's just no way. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a good point. Are you so you're reaching out to all these bankruptcy lawyers? And I want to I want to ask you know best cases out there, but there's also Bankruptcy Pro and and now Jubilee. Is there a way on using those softwares? I know Best Case has the student loan analyzer, but is there anything comparable with? Um... There's no. We 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 take any, we take clients from any software. We don't care. But uh-huh. in terms of using the student analyzer, that's unique to Best Case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. That's unique to Best Case. They're the only they're the pioneers. They're the, I mean, they're, they're the pioneers for pretty much everything. I mean, but uh, in that, I mean, they're not just the pioneers. They're just the only people who have it. Mm-hmm. And just uh, this is a, perhaps a, a small issue, but we're talking about discharging these private student, student loans debts. Typically, if that's not outside of the bankruptcy process, you're going to owe income taxes on the amount of dismissed debt. But here, we're, we're, this is part of the bankruptcy process, so there's, there's no income tax issue involved. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, no, they, these are discharged. The the exception, uh, like I said, I'm, I used to be a CPA. The exception to Title 11 is Title 20. Uh, the exception to Title 28 is Title uh, Title 11, mm-hmm. right? So the exception to the bank to, to uh, the getting uh, uh, having to pay taxes on discharged debt is if the if it was discharged in a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So if these are discharged in a bankruptcy, absolutely not. You do not have to pay any taxes on them. The end of story. That's great. So I, you just reminded me of another major, major benefit here. Get rid of your student loan and don't pay any tax consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's we just with the case we just settled for one of our clients. Uh, we settled two last week. Mm-hmm. We were happily able to remind those clients, hey, you're not going to have to pay taxes on this. This is done. Yeah, awesome, Michael. If Someone out there is listening to this podcast right now and wants to pick up the phone and give you a call or send you an email. What's the best way to get in touch with you to start referring cases? Well, I'd be honored. I they they should call my direct line because this is so important. Because it would it would be obviously something very very important to me. Mm-hmm. So I have you know I have a large staff, but th- these cases are so important, so near near and dear, and I hold them so close to the chest that I actually give people I would give them my direct line. Okay. And my direct three one three eight zero one eight eight zero nine. Mm-hmm. That's not my office line. That's my direct line. And the reason I give my direct line on these is because they're very, very, very important. Very important to me. Okay. And and, and that would be, I would give them my email, but, but my line is the best way because okay. I'm, I always return every voicemail before the day is over. I'm very, very communicative with my phone. I'm communicative, very, very, very well communicative with the email as well, but my phone I mean, yes, that's a direct way of getting to me. And I encourage everybody to leave a voicemail if I don't answer. But my email is mike at fairmaxlaw.com. I mean, that's very simple. They can email me if they like, and that would be great. That would be awesome. Great. And if anyone's listening, I'll put, I'll spell out the website in the transcript to this podcast. So just scroll down if you're listening to the, to the audio player. Hey, Bob, that's, that's all nice of you to, very nice of you to call and take time out of your day to do this. How can I help you? I mean, this is very, very, been very nice of you to do. Well, I mean, 
Um, I told you before the podcast started that every lawyer is doing at least one thing that's pretty amazing, and most of them don't seem to realize that what they're doing is amazing and unique. And so the point of this podcast is really to spread these best practices to to all of our listeners. And so what, one of the, the cool things is in interviewing you, Michael, is that you actually are aware that what you're doing is unique because it, it's so different than the, what everyone's doing. So that's that's very cool. It's still a great best practice to share. And, and that's how you pay me back by sharing your best practices and, and being open and honest about it. And I appreciate that. We can talk offline after the podcast. The other way that, that you or anyone out there can help is by introducing me to other bankruptcy lawyers out there or people who are somehow involved in this practice area to set up more interviews because I learned something in every interview. Okay, good. We'll talk after the podcast is done. Thank you. Let me ask you this question. So I, I, I know of a lot of attorneys that, you know, they they love uh, uh, marketing by sending out mail to people who have judgments, uh, lawsuits entered against them or judgments entered against them or foreclosures. Mm-hmm. I tried. I, it, was, it was too difficult. I didn't get a good response rate. What, what do you, what did, how do lawyers do that? How do they, what's the secret? I know you hear, you've heard about a lot of nice ideas around the country. Give me a couple of like the, the nice, most unique marketing tactics you, you've heard of. Well, the first thing that I would say on the direct mail front is you've got to have a good letter. If you're mailing people a, just a, a, a bad, poorly written letter that's not persuasive and you use words like dis, discharge and things that people don't really understand, you know, you're not going to get a good response rate. So that's the first thing. You really need to work with a professional copywriter to get a really good letter before you start mailing things out. The second tip is, well, this is actually should be the first tip. You always want to work with your, at least review the rules of your state bar to make sure that you're not violating any advertising rules. Oftentimes you have to identify on the envelope that you're, that this is a a legal advertisement, things like that. So make sure that you check with your state bar. The third issue is that a lot of people mail too irregularly and they don't mail quickly enough. So if someone is on January 1st is getting a foreclosure notice and in your state you have three weeks until the foreclosure, if you are mailing twice a month or once a month, you're not going to be the first letter that people receive. So if you mail at least once a week or twice a week uh, or daily, if you're pulling the foreclosure notices online, then you're going to have a lot better response rate than if you're mailing once a month. Does that make sense, Michael? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. How often were you mailing when you tried it? I was doing it the same day. I was doing it every single day. Uh-huh. And the other thing is that if you're trying to make the numbers work for your mailing, you can look at adding filters. So maybe don't mail every home. Maybe only, you know if you're going for Chapter 13s and you're looking at foreclosure notices, maybe only mail people that have a positive equity balance. And those are things that you can get from your data provider. Or if it's a credit card, it's a wage garnishment for a credit card or something. Look at the balance. If it's a $2,000 balance, then maybe they're not going to be file bankruptcy, but it's a $50,000 balance, they will. So those are the sorts of filters that you can use. But those are some tips. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. So what would you say is the best unique idea that you've heard recently that an attorney is doing in his bankruptcy cases? The best, the thing that I'm obsessed with right now is the sales funnel for the average bankruptcy customer because what I found is that the average bankruptcy lawyer needs far too many leads to get one bankruptcy retainer. And my goal is to get it so that every bankruptcy lawyer just needs 
maybe four or five leads in order to get one retainer, as opposed to right now, it's like eight or 10 or 12 or something like that. You know, they're just losing too many people at every step in the process. But, but you're saying what, but you're saying the statistic now for attorneys around the country is what? One out of 20 uh, are coming in or? One out of, tw- one out of, one out of uh, eight or one out of 10 or one out of 12 is is something that I've seen by people that aren't really trying to optimize it. And so what I'm suggesting is that if you're at one out of 12 clients, and you really focus on improving your close rate, then you can triple the size of your practice without spending any money on advertising because you're closing one out of four. That's really, really good. Okay. All right, pal. Well, it's been great talking to you. It's been been amazing to talk to you. I'm really happy we did this, and I appreciate everything you've done. And, yeah, in terms of if you have, you know, clients or attorneys, are you an attorney, by the way? No. Oh, okay. Got it. I'm going to tell you, I could, you know, I, I, cause I'm, I'm not allowed to do referral fees with you if you're not an attorney. If you're an attorney, maybe we could do something. No, that's okay. Well, I get paid with AdWords Consulting, and, you know, my goal is to make the leads more valuable to my clients and to the, to the bankruptcy attorney bar in general by helping people improve their sales funnel and these sorts of things. So that's my goal with this podcast. I'm really excited about it. Oh, if I could plug myself in, in that in that regards, then uh, you know, if you have clients that trust you and you want to give them just the new latest way of doing it, I mean, you just you could, if you would have mind, you tell there's this attorney Paramount. I mean, they could look look me up online. You know, I'm there's a lot of information on me online, and I will talk to them as anytime anytime they want for free and show them how I can get them possibly what could amount to hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in attorney fees for them pretty much doing very, very, very little work, and if anything, go after their prior clientele. Awesome. There is one question that I have for you, which is, is there some kind of white paper that you have or something where someone who doesn't have access to best case and their student loan analyzer can use to manually look at private student loans and to see whether there's a cost of attendance issue? Yeah, I actually have something better than that. I have a PowerPoint presentation. Okay, great. We, we presented, by the way, at NACLA in Orlando this year, presented uh, on this issue. Okay. And we took questions from the audience. And so we're, this is something that's serious. Yes, yeah, so we presented at NACLA and we have a PowerPoint. I can send it to you. If you shoot me an email, I'll respond with the PowerPoint. And with some. And with, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal and in the Market Watch. So this is a serious thing. Yeah, I can absolutely send you that stuff. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.